The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. So go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read the, the final section, which started back in 8.1. So we're going to be reading verses 23 through 11.1. 11.1 is part of... The conclusion of Paul's argument, it's an unfortunate chapter break. So verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking a question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking question, questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered or denounced concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So the Corinthians have tried to make temple attendance, right? So remember that context, the idea of going into a pagan temple. There would be different areas within a temple precinct. One area would be similar to a restaurant where you could eat. Other areas would be more akin to a brothel. And the Corinthians had tried to make going into a a temple and eating a matter of liberty. They've been trying to argue that they have the right to do that. But Paul's point has been, as we saw last week, that it is actually a non-negotiable. You do not have the right to go in to a temple and eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. And the reason why this is is an ethical non-negotiable is because Paul says it's idolatry. That's his whole argument in 10, 14 through 22. It is idolatry. Now, Paul, in, in this next section, is going to shift gears. And it's, it's really important to see that he is shifting gears and he's moving to a different subject because if you think he's talking about the same thing, then what it looks like is that he is now backing off of his strong stance against idolatry. He's moving to a a, a different subject. And so in this final section, which is 23 through 11.1, Paul is doing, in a sense, two things. The first is he's addressing two different issues that he has not explicitly addressed so far, and that is, what about meat that had been purchased in the meat market, which is different than going into the temple to eat meat that you know has been sacrificed to idols, and then dining with unbelievers, right? 
And in a sense, what he may be doing in this final section is sort of tying up a couple of loose ends that he did not deal with explicitly through the course of his larger argument. But he's also doing something else. And that is, he's, he's summarizing the principles that he has already expounded throughout this larger section. Anthony Thistleton calls this section, this is, I think this is very good, he says it should be understood that Paul's dealing with freedom and love, residual issues, and recapitulation. So in other words, a few loose strings, a few loose ends, bringing those together, and then recapping his whole argument. Now, what's the most famous verse in the section that we just read? Yeah, I mean, everybody knows that one, right? Uh, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God, right? Which is a great verse, right? I mean, it just is. It's one of these, like, universal, massive verses. But we run into the same problem in this section that we ran into with, in 10, 1 to 13, and that is, everybody knows 10.13, right? No temptation has overtaken you. Everybody knows that. But one of the problems with having a verse that is so spectacular is that you end up sort of missing the context in which that spectacular verse comes from. And so just like 10.13 has a context, and that context um, is important to understand the verse... 1031 is one of these verses that has a context, and now I'm not opposed to just memorizing that verse, saying this is a life verse, this should motivate me, no matter what I do, I do it all to the glory of God, but Paul says that in a specific context that therefore brings a certain uh, import to 1031 that we often don't think about, all right? So... We start off in verse 23, and what do you notice in verse 23? If you say deja vu all over again, you'd be correct. Anybody recognize that language in 1023? All things are lawful. Now, the last time you saw it, it said explicitly, all things are lawful for me. 6.12, all right? Now, a few things. 6.12, you remember what we argued there? All things are lawful for me. It's a Corinthian slogan, right? If you have the NIV, there's quote marks around all things are lawful. Why? Because the translators are indicating that they believe that this is, in fact, a Corinthian slogan. The Corinthians were, were the, the pioneers of bumper sticker and refrigerator magnet theology, all right? And so this is one of, their, one of their favorite things. All things are lawful. So here Paul repeats it. And again, you have to remember that what, what they're probably doing, so they wrote to Paul, posed a number of either questions or brought up a number of issues They may have been directly inquiring of Paul, or they may have said things in the course of their own correspondence with Paul that Paul believes he needs to correct. But the Corinthians are all about their own rights and their own freedoms. And so this little slogan, all things are lawful, was one that they used to just basically justify all their behavior. Now, it is is a little interesting, and I, I... I didn't pay much attention to this when we covered it in 6.12, but I did notice it today. Lawful is probably not the best translation. In fact, the, uh, the authoritative Greek lexicon, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, BDAG for short, 
But just, I would just want to point out how many Germans have contributed to Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich. And it is that authoritative lexicon that you look this word up, that the NAS translates lawful, and guess what is never mentioned in all of the lists of definitions? Lawful. Okay. Now, I think, this is just a, this is a supposition of mine, I think lawful is probably a little misleading as to what the slogan is getting at, okay? Because if you say all things are lawful, what, 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 is, the, um, what is the connotation to lawful? Okay? It is according to the law. Okay? Did anybody say that or did I have to give that to you? Um, so lawful sounds like this is in conformity to the law. This is according to the law. And you just get the sense that the Corinthians were not overly concerned about that which was according to the law. You get a sense that the Corinthians really were not considerate of, of anything other than what they wanted to do. So I think lawful ends up kind of missing the point. So the Corinthians were not interested in that. So what BDAG does say is authorized, a right, or permitted, or proper. So the NIV, which I usually make fun of but won't tonight, that says, I have the right to do anything. And that's probably a pretty good way to capture all things are lawful. I have the right to do Anything. The Christian Standard Bible puts it like this. Everything is permissible. That's the idea. They're not saying everything is uh, is in conformity to the revealed will of God as as it's contained in the law. What they're saying is, anything I want to do, I have the right to do. The Corinthians exemplify and embody a self-willed, self-centered focus on what they think they have the right to do. And so who does that sound like? It kind of sounds like us, right? I mean, let's face it, we're not big on putting other people first. What we're big on is believing that we know what our rights are and what I have the right to do. Okay. By the way, this is, this is woven into fallen nature. Okay. What, is, what is one of the, one of the first things that your kids learn to say besides mine? Uh, well, no, yeah, so, so no, um, mine. When they get a little older and start to put words together, What's one of their favorite refrains? <laughs> it was not me. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good one too. But <laughs> one of the things that, that kids express without ever being taught is that's not fair. Okay, right? Okay. Now, what you do, is if you're a young parent, pay attention to this. You take that little son or daughter of Adam and you tell them, life is not fair. But I'm now going to show you what justice is. Because justice and fairness are not the same thing. But where does that, that's not fair, come from? Where that comes from is the idea of somebody's being treated better than me, right? No kid ever says, you know what, Dad, I deserve a spanking too because I'm just as guilty as he is. Any of you guys ever done that? No, right? So that's not fair. It's, it's always one directional, right? That is, somebody's being treated in a way that is better than the way I'm being treated, and I'm irritated about that. 
This is a part of fallen nature, right? I deserve to be treated better than how I'm being treated. I have my rights. This is the Corinthians. In in a sense, the Corinthians are the, the ultimate childish church. They operate on the basis of, of childish, immature principles, and they're self-willed, and they're self-centered, and their focus is not on anything other than that which they think they have the right to do. All things are permissible. I have the right to do anything. One, one time, uh, I was preaching at prison, at NSP, and there was this tall, lanky fellow sitting in the front row, and he stretched out, and uh, legs are sticking way out, and he's leaning back in his chair, and, and uh, he starts to sleep. So I walk over, and I... <laughs> You might remember this, right? I kick, I kick his feet. He's sleeping. I kick his feet. And I'm, I said, hey, if you want to sleep, stay in your cell. If you're going to be in here, stay awake. And he said these words that were, are forever emblazoned in my memory. I'm 40 years old. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Now, of course, the natural conclusion to that statement is, and that's why you're here. The Corinthians are like that. Hey, we can do whatever we want. They are the epitome of selfishness. And then Paul turns around, and this is Paul's Paul's response to everything's permissible. Paul turns around and says, not everything is profitable. Now, Paul's response, and this is the common pattern, quote the Corinthian slogan, give a rebuttal. The rebuttal is not always a direct contradiction to the assertion, but it is a corrective. So, all things are permissible, but not everything's profitable. Not everything is advantageous. Not everything actually helps. Not everything... Uh, confers a benefit. Not everything is useful. And notice what Paul does. He repeats the slogan. He repeats the slogan for rhetorical effect. He repeats the slogan for a, a sense of rhetorical force. Okay? He could have just said, um, all things are permissible, and then he could have said, but not everything is profitable, nor does everything edify. But in order to actually really drive the point home, he repeats their slogan and then turns around and says, but not everything edifies. Not everything edifies. With that little phrase, that should actually, that's an echo back to 8.1, Right? Knowledge puffs up, love edifies, love edifies. So Paul's saying, listen, you might have this, uh, this, this view of life that everything is okay for you, but not everything is profitable, not everything is an advantage, not everything is helpful or beneficial, and not everything edifies. By the way, Profitable and edify are are virtually synonymous in the overall context. You look up the word edify to help improve the ability to function in living responsibly and effectively, to strengthen, to build up, to make more able. And of course, this is a word that Paul uses all the time, right? Edify, build up. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Now, at that point, you can see the the profound difference between the Thessalonian church and the Corinthian church. The Corinthians were 
we're actually great on encouraging each other and trying to figure out how to build each other up and strengthen each other. And the Corinthians are completely clueless when it comes to the one another's because they're all about me. And so here Paul says, not everything edifies. So in light of 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You could say that Paul's point is, not everything you do is loving. Not everything that you think you have the right to do is good for somebody else. Not everything that you have that you think you have the right to do actually is designed to strengthen and help somebody else. Now, <clears throat> here's Paul's ethic. All right? You want to boil down it, it, it Paul's um over the years, this is, this is something that I've been really struck by. When, when I was a, a younger Christian, and e- even as a young pastor, if you would have said, um, what, what are the primary ethical Christian responsibilities, I would have said things like um, dedication, commitment, devotion, right? And I would have had... and and, and that stuff is right, but the longer I've studied my Bible, the more I realize that for Paul, the primary manifestation of a Christian ethic is how you treat other people. So you can be the most devoted, dedicated, Godward type person, but if it's not manifesting itself other word, then it's empty. Right? You can have all knowledge, have all wisdom, know all revelation. But if you don't have love, you're a noisy gong, clanging cymbal, a big fat zero. So Paul is going to give us his his ethic, in a sense, in verse 24. And notice the way the argument now goes. So he takes the Corinthian slogan, he responds, and then in in verse 24, he gives the negative. No one should seek his own benefit or his own advantage. Huh. Now, at some point in the future, we're going to, we're going to spend a little time on the difference between selfishness and, and valid self-interest, okay? Because there, th- th- this is a fascinating subject, probably only for me, but um, I'll talk about it sooner or later. But notice what Paul says here. It's really clear. No one should seek, no one should be seeking their own benefit, their own advantage, Now, this is absolutely contrary to what the world teaches us, right? The the world's ethic is look out for number one, which is you, right? Make sure that you put yourself first. Now, have you ever thought about the fact that if everybody lived according to that principle... Oh, well, pretty much everybody does live according to that principle. I was going to say that if everybody lived according to that principle, there might be like wars and conflicts. The world says, get what's coming to you, right? Now, let's, uh, let's go from, uh, you know, general application to uh, more specific, um, we tell our kids these kinds of things. We say, you need to go to college. And the reason you need to go to college is because you need to get a really good job. And the reason that you need to get a really good job is so that you can make good money because a person that makes good money lives a comfortable life. This is, this is American conventional wisdom, okay? 
Go to college. Why? So I can self-smart myself? No, so that you can get a good job. Why get a good job? So I can contribute to the good of society and humanity as a whole? No, so that you can make lots of money. Why should I want to make lots of money? So that I can support world missions? No, so that you can actually have all the stuff that you want and live a better life than your parents. Every generation surpasses the generation before, except this present generation. You guys that are growing up, you're never going to live up to your parents' standards. Okay? Economy is going down. You better just get prepared for absolute abject poverty and misery. Okay? You know, if that happened, it wouldn't be the worst thing. Right? But why do we say stuff like, hey, get a good education so you can get a good job so you can make lots of money and have a happy life? Why do we say that? Because we buy into the world's ethic that says, you know what? What matters most in this life is that I get what's coming to me and that I live a really happy life that is convenient and, and I have all the stuff I want and do all the stuff I want to do. And Paul says... No one should seek after their own advantage. What's really heartbreaking is the Christian parents will tell their kids this. And instead of telling your kids, hey, you know what? One of these days, God may call you to the mission field so that you can go lay down your life for Christ. Doesn't even appear on our radar because it's choked out by the American dream. And the American dream kills missions. Paul says, nobody just should be seeking their own advantage. Well, with the world, self is God, self is Lord. So seeking one's own benefit, of course, is the, is the world's first and great commandment. But here's the positive. But they should seek the benefit or the advantage of the other. That's easier as long as it stays on the paper and you can just read it. You start to try to live that and you start to realize how selfish I really am. I'm sure you've heard it said that a person doesn't know how selfish they really are until they get married. And then they really don't know how selfish they are until they have children. Right? Paul's point is this. You live your life for the sake of others, for the benefit of others for the advantage, for the good of others. This isn't the only place that Paul has said this. This is is woven into Paul's view of what happens when you become a Christian. Just flip back over to uh, uh, Romans chapter 15 for a second. Romans chapter 15. The context is similar. It's not the same. Paul says in in Romans 15, verse 1, Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Now, for Paul, you have to understand, in Romans 14 and then in the first part of 15, he's talking about the weak and the strong, all right? For Paul, the weak are those who abstain from certain things for conscience' sake, and the strong are those who 
use their liberty and participate in that which they are free to do. Normally, um, our fundamentalism causes us to reverse those things and to think that the strong is the one who abstains and the weak is the one who participates, but it's actually the reverse. Now, notice what Paul says. The strong, that is those who know that they have the liberty to do X, Y, Z. Read the context. They ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please themselves. In other words, um, I may know full well that I have the liberty to, to do this or to do that, but as I look at my weaker brother, I shouldn't look at him in a way and just say, boy, I hope he grows up someday and just do what I want to do. Paul says, no, you bear with their weakness, and then what do you do? You don't just live to please yourself. You're thinking of the weak, and you're not thinking of the weak in terms of how can I help him be strong? You bear with his weakness. But by the way, that all by itself is huge because we always want to fix people that we think somehow are inferior to us. We want to, we want to fix people that are weaker than us. And Paul doesn't say, you who are strong, fix the weak so that they can be strong like you. It's not your job to make the weak strong. It's your job to endure with the weaknesses of those who are weak. Which means that I patiently accept my my brother or my sister as they are. And at some point I have to say, my life is not about me. It's about helping him. It's about helping her. And so I'm not going to just please myself. Bearing with the weakness of the weak means I don't please myself. Then he says this, let each of us please his neighbor, oh, look at it, for his good, to his edification. I'm supposed to live my Christian life with, a, with an outward neighbor focus. Boy, is this radical? Is this a revolutionary way to live? We are all wired by nature to be selfish, self-centered, self-serving people who live to please ourselves above everything else. And that comes whether it's in marriage or family or the church or wherever. This is how we're wired. And Paul actually says, you know what? When you're, when you're living your Christian life, you need to be thinking about how to please your neighbor. That means, that means you're living in a way that you're seeking their good to build them up, to strengthen them, to help them. For even Christ did not please himself, but, but as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. So Christ ends up being the great example to us of one who entered into this world not to please himself. He came into this world for the good of others. For the benefit, the eternal benefit of others. And and what Paul does is he he cites Psalm 69, I think it's 69.4, the reproaches, uh, basically the reproaches that he didn't deserve fell on him. And so Christ actually came and willingly endured for, for our sake. This ends up being 
the model for us as Christians. Does Paul say anything like this anywhere else? The answer is yes. Philippians chapter 2. You know, we know these texts, but there's a sense where we can become so familiar with these things that they, 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 they lose their force with us. They lose their, their, their ethical grip and compelling power because we're so familiar. I mean, think about this. We, we know this by heart, right? Paul says, uh, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. There it is all over again. Clearly stated. I don't live from out of vainglory, empty conceit. I don't live out of a sense of selfishness, but with a humility of mind. Humility of mind is a prerequisite to do what? To regard other people as more important than me. New American Standard in verse 4 says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Okay? Forget how the ESV does this, but just if you have the NAS, notice that merely is in italics, right? What does that mean if it's in italics? It's not in the original. So let's read it without that. Do not look out for your own personal interests. Now, there may be a good reason. I think we had this discussion at one point a few couple years ago. But there may be a good reason to put merely, but, but when you think about it, merely softens it, right? So don't just merely look out for your own interests, right? The idea is, Still look out for your interest, but just don't merely look out for your own interest. And I don't think that that's Paul's point. Do not look out for your own personal interest, but for the interests of others. And so here's the principle once again. Humility of mind. Think of others as more important than yourself. Don't just go looking, living life, looking for your own personal interest. Live for the interest, for the good of other people. And then what does Paul do? He does the same thing he does in Romans 15, except he does it in a most glorious way. He uses Christ as an example. In 15.3 of Romans, it's, for not even Christ pleased himself, but here what Paul does is he, he takes takes this principle of putting others above ourselves, and then he employs one of the most glorious Christological passages in the entire New Testament, pushing it into service for ethical purposes, and that is, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, we're familiar with the rest because we we look at this text as a, as, as a text that demonstrates the deity of Christ, the, um, the uh, exaltation of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ. And all that's, all that's magnificently true. But don't, again, don't lose the context. So think of others more important as yourself. Put other people above yourself. Why should you do this? Because you should have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed as God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be forcibly retained, but he emptied himself. Became a servant. Was found in the appearance of man. Became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so in both places, Romans 15.3 and in Philippians 2, what Paul does is he points to the Lord Jesus not only as an example of one who actually sought the good of others, but he sought the good of others at the expense of himself.
Have you ever um, helped somebody out that was less fortunate than you? Give them a $20 bill or buy them some groceries or you do something nice for somebody. You ever, you ever do that? It's okay if you say yes. I, I won't acknowledge like, I see that. You lose your reward. You lose your reward. Okay. Yeah, we do that, right? We do it out of a sense of compassion. We do it out of a sense of wanting to help somebody, right? There is no way to fathom what Jesus did for us and for our good. There is no way to comprehend the infinite condescension of the Son of God Jesus just didn't simply give a handout to a few people hanging out on a corner with cardboard signs. He became one of us. He became one of us not to inhabit some some, uh, great palace or, or halls of glory and power, but he became like us in his and and he became poor and he became a servant and it was it was the most profound act of condescension you could ever imagine in fact it goes beyond anything we can imagine and the reason is is because there's no way for us to actually fathom the heights of Jesus status before the incarnation eternal son image of the invisible God, right hand of the Father, full of glory and honor and power, and angels worshipped him. And it is is that Christ in unfathomable glory who actually comes into this world as a human being, born of a virgin, entering into a life of misery and woe a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God, rejected and forsaken by men. And he does it for our good. He does it for our eternal good. There's no way to grasp the love of Christ. Paul says that, that, that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. And then Paul has the audacity to say, and that's the model for you when it comes to other people. If Jesus does that for us, can you not put other people first? I think that there are times where I can be sort of a critical person, you know. Ariel rubs off on me, and it's just really awful. And so there are times where my compassion towards other people is not nearly what it, what it should be. Is 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 that just me or is anybody else in that in that boat? Okay, it's just me. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. <laughs> yeah, it's just me. Um, there should be something about what Christ has done for us that makes me constantly realize. There are no icky people. You have an icky standard? Nobody wants to say, yeah, I do. But we do, right? See that person? Yeah. 
icky person. I'll help that person because that person looks like they deserve it. That person is an icky person. If Jesus would have had an icky standard, he never, ever would have become incarnate because we're all icky. Ickier than any of us can even imagine. And so when Paul says, when you live your life, you don't live it just seeking your own good. You live it seeking the good of other people. You put other people first. You actually seek to please other people. Now, here's the question. Can Paul say that with any kind of authority? Did he practice what he preached? Absolutely. It's not as if we have an apostle who actually said, the Lord told me I need $57 million for my own private jet because I can't fly with icky people. You guys should read the Babylon Bee more often. Our Lord Jesus actually stands in his incarnation, his humiliation stands as a rebuke to us. Rebuking us of our self-centeredness, our selfishness, a life that's all about me. So, to be self-centered and self-seeking is sinful. Right? Have you ever met anybody like that? Self-centered, self-seeking. They're not like typically the people that you want to hang out with. Because they're all about you as long as you're all about them. This kind of life, Paul says, is just wrong. Neighbor-pleasing. As Christians, is a virtue. You say, well, hold on a second. Pleasing my neighbor, that, I, I, that, sounds, uh, that sounds compromising to me. Well, I mean, Paul is, is, is saying two different things. When he talks about pleasing one's neighbor, that's different than being a man-pleaser. He condemns man-pleasing in Galatians 1.10 and 1 Thessalonians 2.4. That's not what Paul was about. Man-pleasers actually, everything they do and say is to get the applause and approval of other people. And Paul says that's wrong because then you end up offending God. But seeking to do good and to please your neighbor is a Christian virtue. Very clearly, our Lord Jesus Christ is a supreme example of this. And so Gordon Fee says this. He says, for Paul, the death of Christ in which he gave himself for us is not only God's offer of pardon for sinners, but also the only proper model of discipleship. Hence, freedom does not mean to seek what pleases me, not even my own good. Rather, it means to be free in Christ in such a way that no one can truly seek to benefit and build up. Sorry, to be free in Christ in such a way that one can truly seek to benefit and build up another person. And so the cross is, yes, the cross is about my forgiveness, and it's about my reconciliation to God, but it also stands as, as this model for us as to what it means to live our lives for the sake and the benefit of other people. I want you to think with me just for, just for a minute. What would our marriages look like if we put this into practice put our spouse first above ourselves and sought their good and not our own. 
if, if you do that consistently, please come up after the service, lay hands on me, you know, anoint me with your, with your perspiration or something because I need to get what you got because this is hard, right? It's hard. It's not easy to just say, you know what? What, what I want right now doesn't matter. It, it, it's a matter of me doing what's good for you. And you, by the way, you don't tell them that that's what you're doing either. Okay? That kind of ruins it. What I'm doing, I'm doing for your good to my expense. Just want you to know that. Okay? Imagine. So we'll go from, from the, the hard to believe to the ridiculous. Imagine if our children lived like this. Those of you that have siblings... And I see a bunch of you. Could you imagine what family life would look like if you thought, you know, in light of what Jesus has done for me, my siblings are more important than me, and I'm going to put them above myself. We'd have a revival. We'd usher in the kingdom of God. The millennium would come to earth. The reason that, that it, it actually even strikes us as funny is because we're so far from it. Right? Ariel and I, we were, years ago I was up preaching and uh, up in, um, I was up, we were up in Oregon and we stayed with this family, this is the pastor, and they had like nine or ten kids, I can't remember. They had a lot. They had to have like a huge van to travel around like some of, some of our families. And we all got over to the place where we were going to have dinner. And the mom, none of the kids got out of the van. And the mom walked around, opens the side van door, and she looks inside the van, and she says, remember, be servants. And all of the kids said, yes, mom. Ariel and I started weeping. <laughs> Oh, Lord, could it be, you know, we've only got three, I mean, you know. But, and then all of those kids got out, and they were helpful, they were kind, they were considerate. It can be done, okay? It can be done. But that kind of putting other people first only comes from an authentic humility, and authentic humility only comes from knowing Christ, This is not just about, you know, helpful hints on how to have a happier family. This is about actually having the power and the aroma and the savor of Christ in our families in such a way that we go, yeah, of course everybody else is more important than me. Well, think what would happen if we put this into practice in church. You ever get irritated because somebody's in your seat? I do. In fact, just to let you know, I need to have two seats. One for my Bible and my notes, and then one for me. Okay? And I get like this weird thing that happens when somebody's in the seat right next to me. And I'm thinking, don't they know I've got to prepare my heart to preach to that person? If I was thinking about Philippians 2, like, no big deal, right? No big deal. What are the things that irritate you at church? What are the things that get under your skin? What are the things that you go home and you go, I can't believe. What are those things? Every single one of those things exists Because at that point, Philippians 2 doesn't. 
right? You're awful quiet. You're awful quiet. And I will tell you what. This applies to me because there are things that irritate me. I'm easily irritated, irritated, in case you haven't noticed. Very easily irritable. Right? No? Yeah, you've never noticed? Good. Good answer. Good. Man, you, you, you take that to the cross and you realize how foolish it is. How silly it is. This kind of thinking and this kind of practice could revolutionize a church. Right? So, I find it incredibly convicting. And here's Paul, and he says, this is, this, this is what it is to be a Christian. This is a Christian ethic, right? It's actually pretty simple. You don't seek your own good. You seek the good of your neighbor. Okay. Now, that brings us to the next part, which I'm just going to touch on, and then we'll save the rest of it for next week. So this is now the application. So, so Paul set up the principles. Now he gets to verse 25, and he says, Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. So now Paul brings this now back into focus. And so he says, So... Here's, here's the principle. Don't ask. Everything that's bought in the meat market. So here he's talking very specifically about meat that's purchased for one's own consumption. Okay? Now, in the text, Paul uses a, an unusual word for market. In fact, most English translations don't just say market. They actually say meat market. The word in, in Greek is makello. There is a, a Latin equivalent, makellum, and um, Theological Dictionary New Testament says it was a rectangular court of pillars with a fountain in the middle over it, and it was supported by pillars, dome-shaped roof, booths on both sides, filled with porticos. And so the question is, why does Paul use this particular word? Well, probably because there is an inscription that was found in Corinth with the inscription... The Mechelum. It's where they bought the meat. Okay? So Paul undoubtedly is using a word that had a very specific reference. It'd be like saying, you know, Walmart, you know, or Save Mart or whatever. Right? Very specific. And so there's one in Corinth that we know for sure. And so the meat that was sold at the Mechelum was um, meat that came from a number of different sources. And some of the meat came as part of sacrifices that had been butchered by pagan priests. Not all of the meat fit into that category, but some of the meat fit into that category. And so Paul says, when you go into the meat market to buy your groceries, you are to actually um, buy it without inquiring. Eat it without inquiring for the sake of conscience. Now, this is, this is um, important to remember. When a Jew went into the market, a Jewish person was under obligation to inquire, is this meat, meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And then for the Jewish person, such meat was absolutely forbidden. But Paul's saying Christians have the freedom to buy and to eat without question. So when he says, by the way, for conscience sake, don't ask for conscience sake, um, Paul could actually be saying, uh, when, so you go into the meat market, you walk up to the counter, and you see this really nice, um, you see this really nice cut of meat, and Paul could be saying, now don't ask, did that come from the temple of Isis? And don't ask for conscience sake. Now, what Paul could be saying is, don't ask for the sake of your own conscience. Okay? That makes sense? I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think that in light of what Paul is talking about, is the idea is, don't ask for conscience sake, because 
Conscience at this point ends up being irrelevant. Meat is meat. In other words, Christian, you have to understand that that meat is meat. How do I know that that's what Paul's talking about? Because he says, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. It's as if Paul's saying this, is, this isn't a matter of conscience. Just don't ask for conscience sake because meat is meat. It all belongs to God. It all comes from God. So, by the way, in Jewish tradition, the, the Psalm 24.1 was used as a basis for thanksgiving for all of the food that one received. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And there was a recognition that it all came from God. But then there was also the scruple that, well, if it, if it, was, if it touched a pagan altar somewhere, then that was, you know, that was forbidden. But what Paul's saying is, Paul uses this text not just for the idea of thanksgiving, give thanks for everything that you get, but for asserting that everything actually comes from the Lord. And at the end of the day, there's no such thing as unclean meat. There's no such thing as unclean. How do we know that? Well, Mark 7, Jesus declares all foods clean, for one, but probably more relevant is Acts chapter 10 and Peter's vision going to Cornelius' house, by the way, which also has ramifications when you're invited to an unbeliever's house. Would a Jewish person ever go to an unbeliever's house to eat? No, not at all. Paul says, if they invite you, go ahead and go. Why? Because just as sure as there's no unclean food, there's no unclean person. So Paul says, this is the principle. It's really simple. Don't even ask. Don't say, did you get that meat from the temple down the street? Don't ask for conscience sake. It's irrelevant. All comes from God. Now, 27 introduces a different scenario. If one of the unbelievers invites you, and you wish to go, eat anything that's set before you. The text actually says, eat everything that's set before you, which is incredibly comforting. Eat everything that is set before you. Unless, of course, you go to the Elliot's house and she serves Brussels sprouts, at which point you don't have to eat everything, although I will tell you that Rebecca will catch you just like she caught me. I tried to hide tried to hide the vegetables under the shrimp tails, and it didn't work. Eat everything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So this is a different situation. Now the unbeliever asks you, asks you to join them for a meal. Okay. So when a person buys for himself, the question arises at the shop. When he is guest of another, it arises at the table says Finley. So the point is, says Fee, is that neither location is a legitimate place to inquire about the origin of the food. So let's pretend that Arnie is a pagan and he invites me to his new house. He says, hey, you want to come over to my house? I'm barbecuing steaks. I say, absolutely. Paul would say, don't ask Arnie where he got the steaks. Just eat the steak. The Jewish scruple would be to prohibit because you can't enter into Arnie's house. So then the question is, could this possibly be an invitation for an unbeliever asking a believer to come dine at the temple? What do you think? Absolutely not. Because first of all, there would be no question as to where the meat came from if you were eating in a temple. And secondly, Paul has already clearly forbidden it. So eat everything that's put before you, asking nothing because of conscience. So we're going to stop there. We'll pick it up next week. But understand what, what Paul's doing is he's showing us
in a, in a historical situation that does not have a tremendous amount of application to us. We're not typically, this is not an issue for us like it was in the first century. But the principle is actually quite simple. And that is, as you live out your Christian life, put other people first. Think about others first. That goes when they invite you to dinner. That goes for all kinds of stuff. Just daily family life. May God help us to do that. Because it's hard. Everybody likes to be first. Paul says, if you follow Jesus, Jesus never said, me first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very uh, convicting passage, and we pray for your help as we try to apply it. And Father, we pray that your spirit would transform our hearts, especially, Lord, as we, as we struggle with, with selfishness and, Lord, with how hard it is to put other people first. We pray for your help. We pray that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would do a work in us so that Jesus would be magnified in our lives. In his name we pray, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.